Welcome to the He Shoots, He Draws podcast, the show about photography and design, with your hosts, Glyn Dewis and Dave Clayton. Hello and welcome to a new episode of the He Shoots, He Draws podcast with me, Glyn Dewis, and my co-host, designer, and the He Draws side of the duo, Dave Clayton. Now, Dave isn't here for this episode because this week I have a special one for you. Not one that was planned, but one that happened this past weekend when I was down in the south of England photographing and interviewing World War II veteran Jack Ansell for my 3945 Portraits project. Now, a big part of what I'm doing with the project, as well as taking photographs of veterans, is all around education. When it's appropriate, I film an interview of veterans talking about certain experience, be it training, joining up and so on, only asking them about things they're comfortable to talk about, if that makes sense. And these recordings are available to watch on the main 3945portraits.com website in the memories section, which is constantly growing thing, but they'll also be available to watch and listen to at the upcoming exhibition, which starts on the 19th of October. Now, meeting and photographing and chatting with Jack was an absolute treat. Jack, by the way, celebrated his 100th birthday recently, which is absolutely fantastic, especially if you ever saw him. There's no way you'd put him anywhere near that age. He can still touch type 60 words a minute. He still drives himself around in his own car and is way more active and agile than a lot of folks half his age, I can tell you. When filming Jack, I swear my jaw was as wide open as Jacob Marley in A Christmas Carol. I was completely absorbed with what he was saying, as was his son Brian, who was also there. An absolute gent of a man that, along with his father, made me feel totally and utterly welcome. Jack talked about his memories of World War II when serving in the Royal Corps of Signals during the Battle of Greece and how he was captured and held as a POW, prisoner of war, for four years doing forced labour. Now, this isn't a story of blood and gore. This is a story of human kindness and compassion. It's a story of risk versus reward. This is real history. You're going to love it. If you want to, you can also head over to 3945 Portraits website and watch the video version of this interview where you'll see Jack not just talking, but living the stories he tells. You can just see it in his eyes that as he's talking, he can see and hear every detail. You'll get to see that Jack was quite a man in his youth and definitely knew how to make the very best of a bad situation. Finally, before I let you take a listen, I just want to say a huge thank you to Brian Ansell and his son Jonathan, who incidentally is the lead singer of G4, for their trust in allowing me into their dad and their granddad's home. And finally to Jack. Thank you for being part of the project. Thank you for sharing your incredible story. But most of all, thank you for your service. I'd been a prisoner of war six months or so. And um, after being confined in a large camp, we were sent out to work in small units attached to farms. And there were a few of us. <clears throat> and I was chopping wood one day when uh, an Austrian soldier from the Austrian Mountain Infantry came up to me and uh, and said to me, I see that you're Trousers are held up by a piece of string. I've got a belt I'll bring you tomorrow. So he brought me the belt, held my trousers up. Then quite coincidentally, several weeks later, I was transferred from working at that farm to another farm which happened to be his father's farm. And I was working there one morning and his father came up to me crying 
and said, Fritz has been killed in Russia. What can you say? But just commiserate. Conscription was introduced in uh, 1939 and uh, all men of 20 years of age were conscripted. And uh, I went into the... And I had to go to register and um, <coughs> at the registration procedure they asked what my occupation was. Well, I was a sorting clerk and telegraphist in the general post office. So that was horses for courses. So I was posted then to the Royal Corps of Signals. And uh, I think I went, it was 29th of November. Uh, I arrived at Prestetin holiday camp, which had been converted into a military unit. And um, we did square bashing there for about four weeks. And then after that, we were assigned into technical units. And uh, at that time, um, the British troops were in Norway. And um, I was um, drafted to go to Norway, but Devon never went. Then I found myself moved to Catterick Garrison in Yorkshire, very, very large military base. And I was posted, we looked to stand at um, company orders every morning, every evening, and my name was never up there. So I got fed up with hanging around. I was being posted to British Expeditionary Force in France, then it was cancelled, then it was on, then it was cancelled. So I said, went to the company office and said, can you send me anywhere? So they sent me to a unit in Colwyn Bay, which was a bit of a, well, it was a ramshackle kind of unit compared with what we'd been used to in a military sense in Catterick. And uh, from there, I stayed there not very long. And then uh, we were suddenly posted overseas. And uh, I remember we were transported to um, Liverpool docks. <clears throat> and uh, we went on the SS Orontes, didn't know where we were going. And uh, sailed out right into the Atlantic. And then we were told we were going due south. And we finally finished up in Cape Town. And we stayed in Cape Town a couple of days, I suppose. And I remember there, when we landed, of course, apartheid was very rife there between the blacks and the whites. <clears throat> and the first person to greet us was a coloured man. And he took us my friend and I, Ken Potter, who was killed in Greece, to um, a cafe and brought us a cup of tea. And then from then on, uh, we went and found a cafe where we had a small chicken eats for lunch. And then in the evening, 
uh, of all things in Cape Town, we went to the pictures. <laughs> Came out of the pictures and a big limousine pulled up at the side of us with a lady and gentleman in and they invited us into their car and said they would meet us in the morning at 10 o'clock and take us up Table Mountain. But we weren't there at 10 o'clock. We'd sailed, sailed in the night around the south of Africa, up the east coast, and finally landed at Port Tufik, which is the, the port at the extreme end, the opposite end of Suez. And there we unloaded our stores and uh, finished up in Palestine. There for a while, toured Jerusalem. They had a quite a lovely time in Tel Aviv and so forth. Let's have a drink. And then uh, we were suddenly moved, moved to a camp on the edge of the Western Desert in Egypt <coughs> and uh, didn't stay there long. The next morning we were moved and found ourselves boarding a warship, HMS Dorsetshire, and... Um, we went on board and um, handed our rifles in. And I remember the captain, Captain Cunningham, he later became the commander-in-chief of the Mediterranean fleet. He said, now you soldiers, I'm in charge. I'm the one that gives orders now. Don't go on deck between dawn and dusk. When we're at action stations, keep out of the way. Because if you go overboard, we won't pick you up. And uh, so we sailed for um, Port Piraeus, which is the port for Athens. And when we arrived there, we were cheered by the Greek people as the conquering heroes coming. Of course, we moved up into Greece and then retreated back and they threw stones at us when we were on our way back. And uh, then it all came to a conclusion at Kalamata when the Germans, we were laying a line um, along the gutter for the night's communications when uh, the Germans entered the, uh, entered the town. And I can remember... Alec, my sergeant, was in front of me and I was about 20 feet behind him unrolling a reel of cable when uh, I noticed a German sidecar with a driver on the motorbike and somebody in the sidecar coming up to him. And... Uh, he told me afterwards, this, one of the Germans jumped off, stuck his Tommy gun in his guts and said, for you the war is over, Sergeant. Now, I, I, I didn't hear any of this, he told me. But then I saw him 
going towards a group of eight or nine of our chaps who had been captured. And um, I thought, what's happening here? And I half turned to see what was happening with the rifle still on my shoulder when a German soldier on, appeared on my left and fired along the ground alongside of me. So I uh, went on and joined this small group, still with my rifle on my shoulder. And uh, when I got there, there was a German sergeant holding us all up with his Tommy gun. And one of our chaps said to me, drop that effing rifle if you'll get a shot. So I quietly slid it off my shoulder onto the ground. And then uh, we were marched along the the, the, the seafront and we came to a German field gun which was pointing in our direction. And a young German gunner about my age came up to me and said, our war today, perhaps yours tomorrow. Uh, but he never had a tomorrow because from my recollection, New Zealand troops attacked pretty quickly and killed all of the gun crew. And of course, I was a prisoner of war by this time. And uh, I can remember after there was about a dozen of us that were that were kind of paraded with uh, <coughs> a German officer in command and they started to um, march us off and as they marched off I, I don't know why perhaps I had a thought in mind to escape because I nipped onto the other side of the road and immediately a German soldier hit me across the behind with the flat side of his bayonet. So I uh, I went back. And as we approached um, uh, a road, um, a German tank was coming out as I was about to cross. And a German soldier took the scruff of my collar and pulled me back. He saved my life. And then uh, we... Uh, was marshalled up onto a hill, about 20 of us, and we were told to lie down. If we, if we attempted to move, we'd be shot. So we went to sleep. And in the morning, when I looked down, there was a whole column of our soldiers who'd surrendered at noon, at dawn. They'd been warned if they didn't surrender, the German Air Force was coming in, so they had, had no alternative. And then from there, no food. <laughs> if you think you're hungry, you've never been hungry. And from there, we uh, stayed a few nights under canvas. And then we marched to a railway station and... Uh, went in a train to somewhere. Then we got off and we had to walk over the mountains. And I can remember walking over these mountains and down the other side, all I got was my water bottle and uh, got down onto the other side and I thought, well, I'll uh, 
I think I'll call more my faith in because uh, plenty of us there in in the stream. There was a German soldier standing by the stream, so I took my boots off and put my feet in the water, and he got very annoyed. Told me to get up and get going, and I, I won't let, say what I told him. So I stayed there and washed my feet in the cold water. So I needn't have bothered really because. Once we were marshalled down to a, a, a train yard, there was, um, <clears throat> have you seen the big pump with a, a rubber tube on which puts the water in engines? Mm-hmm. Well, someone had got that going. So we got underneath that and got, got really, really cooled down. And then from there on... Um, we were putting cattle trucks, about 50 men in a cattle truck. There was only room to just sit with your knees up. And we were in there for five days, let out now and again to go to the toilet, and finally arrived at, a, at um, forget the name of the place, on the borders of Yugoslavia and Austria. That was the camp we stayed at. And um, I can remember there clearly um, thinking now all we got was what we stood up in. And I found a blanket. And I thought, well, I think I'll uh, make a sleeping bag. So to make a sleeping bag, you've got to have a needle and thread, haven't you? So I made a needle. So I mean, you said about the needle, we can't, we can't find it yet. You'll find it when I've gone, that's for sure. That's right. But how, how did you make it then? With my, with my knife. I've still got my army knife. And uh, a piece of wood. And just pared a piece of wood down, about that big. Made a needle. Made, a, a, made an eye in it. Found a piece of string. Unraveled it, put the thin bits in through the eye, made a sleeping bag out of a blanket. There's nothing you can't do when you, when you have to. So how how long were you um, captured for? How long were you held captive for? How long what? How long were you? How long were you prisoner of war for? Four years. And. How? What was that experience like? I know you've mentioned about already that German soldier, sorry, the Austrian soldier that gave you a belt, which is yeah. just lovely to hear. Yeah. How How was the the, the remaining time that you spent? Oh well, at at first, um, when we were first captured, we went to a a big camp in Corinth, in 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 Greece, and. Uh, you had to watch your P's and Q's there if you get knocked about, but if you if you behaved yourself, then you were all right. They brought in some German soldiers in white jackets. I don't know where they came from, but they were a rough lot. Um, but um, we we slept on. Uh, I remember sleeping on the floor with Alan, my friend. Well, we all slept on the concrete floor in garages, and at, at night we used to pin two over our 
two overcoats together to make a blanket to keep warm. <laughs> I worked on the road for a while, or supposed to work on the road till I found I could get away with it by pushing an empty wheelbarrow, but then I got caught doing that. So then I, I noticed there was another chap who'd got a rake and he was raking the gradient on the slope. So I went and joined him and uh, they didn't spot that. So, And then uh, from there we were sent to work um, on farms. And uh, the first farm I went to work on, uh, the farmer was here, Reinbarker. He was a, uh, a thorough German through and through called me a bloody pig-dog Englishman once in German. I could speak German, so I called him a bloody pig-dog Austrian as well back, which he never responded. And uh, I fell out with him after that, and they moved me to um, another working party. And that's where I found myself working for the father of the soldier we mentioned earlier that gave me the belt. Then I, uh, <coughs> I went to work up a top of a mountain. It was about 2,000 feet, I think, above sea level. There were about four of us in there, uh, in this place. And that was easy going because we could um, <coughs> wander about as we liked. Nobody, the guard didn't seem to bother and uh, I remember once we, uh, a few of us got out and uh, we were found ourselves at a party of, of Austrians. So we joined in, drinking their schnapps and, and whatever drink they got. And then coming back, I remember we, we stopped at a farm and uh, there was a, I don't know if I could tell you this, there was the farmer's daughter there, about my age, I suppose, and uh, she invited me in for the night. So I thought, what do I do? So I thought, well, why not? So uh, I hung around till dusk, and then at dusk she opened the farm door, and uh, I, I, I crept in, and uh, <coughs> took me to the bedroom. I, I looked around. There was a baby in the bed. And there she was coming out in her nothings. I thought, this isn't a place for me. That baby put me off. So I, uh, I came out and uh, made my way back. <laughs> all kinds of pitfalls. <laughs> From about a, a month or six weeks before the war ended, we, um, we were taken from our working camps and we marched about 300 miles uh, across Austria, over the Alps, down the other side, and... Uh, sleeping in all kinds of funny places 
One place I remember was in the gully of a cowshed and um, we carried on there and then it started to rain as we went over the top of the Alps and down the other side and we were making for a place called Mark Pongau. We didn't know at the time, but of course we were soaking wet by the time we arrived in this this camp. And uh, we managed to find cover inside. Mark Pongo, it was called. And uh, then after, a, I think it was the next morning, we found a tent. And about six of us erected a tent near the um, barbed wire surrounding the, the camp. And... Uh, we, we set ourselves up in there and then uh, of course we got no food and we'd still got the barrow which we'd carted over the Alps and there's a lot, a lot of story about that when a German SS officer saw us with our barrow and came and started kicking it then he slapped one of our chaps around the face so we said don't respond and he walked away. Um, then we had our tent by the by this wire, and then we'd got no food, so we drew lots, and uh, it fell to me, and a chap who was uh, worked in racing stables, Smiler, little chap, fell to us to get out of the camp and get some food. So we, when it was dusk, we waited till the guard was at the end of his patrol line, climbed under the wire, ran like stink, hoping we wouldn't be shot. And then uh, the first night we called in at a, at a farm and asked for bread. But they were very willing and they gave us a loaf, big round loaf. And we wanted to sleep somewhere that night. So they said, well, you can sleep in the barn. So we went in the barn and way in, up. it was a high area on the left, and we went up there and went to sleep in the hay. And in the morning, I woke up and looked, and I was looking at a German soldier with some of his mates, about far away, about as far as the summer house. He'd been sleeping on the hay. I looked at them. They looked at us. They didn't do anything. I think they were running away as well, if we but knew it. And uh, so we went back to the farmer. And he said, I told them last night, if it's good enough for you, it was good enough for them. I don't believe it, but still. So we went back with our, with our bread and so forth. And then after <clears throat> the Germans had surrendered, as we were by a railway line, uh, a, a big long goods train was, was parked. <coughs> so we thought, well, we'll see what we can nick from the, this goods train. So we went in and I, uh, I found a typewriter which I brought back, which I typed all those stories with, incidentally which are now in the Imperial War Museum. And uh, 
after I'd, uh, oh, of course, then uh, we wanted um, some furniture. So we had a carpenter. Of course, by this time, the Germans had surrendered. And uh, we went out into the town, found a timber yard, came back with a load of timber. And the chap who was a carpenter made a floor for us in the tent, made a table and benches that we could sit at. And then, uh, of course, I found this typewriter on this German train with loads of paper. So there was a table, a typewriter, and loads of paper. And men came to me with stories they'd written and poems, and I typed them out. And they're in that, that book. There's a little. There was, stuff that films are made of, isn't it? There were some German children in the same camp at the other end of the camp, and used to see our chaps sitting on the ground telling them stories. And one of these young girls, I was about twelve, I suppose, came to me one day and said, "Can I have your typewriter when you go?" So yeah, we made a date. She came along. I said, "We'll be going tomorrow." when the Americans came into the camp and she came along and I gave her the typewriter and all the paper and some soap and a towel to wash with, all the things I didn't need anymore. wonder if she remembers. Mm. I bet she does. Yeah, and then we were whisked off in um, American lorry. They must say they were very organised They'd organised us in, into 25 men a truck and each truck had a number and you were told which truck you were in and then on the roadway was marked the number of the truck. And uh, of course when the time came we clambered into the lorry and of course I wanted to see where we were going looking over the top of the cab and this lime dust from the road got in my eyes and inflamed my eyes so I had to get medical treatment once we arrived to a, a camp south of Salzburg then we were we were due to leave the following day but um, the Americans didn't come to fly us out so we had to sleep in the woods and uh, I must admit they uh, they provided iced iced coffee when all we wanted was a tin of corned beef, iced coffee and fancy stuff like that. And when we went to the equivalent of our naffy, asked for spearmint, I, I was given a packet of five hundred. <laughs> oh, they're a crazy lot. So the next morning, however. The RAF came and, of course, they had the usual stories that the Yanks wouldn't fly because of the, because of the weather, but they'd come to fly us out. So they flew us to Brussels where we were deloused and re-kitted and uh, came home to England. Yeah, the first camp we were at, there were about eight of us, I think, and... Um, we had uh, a young Austrian as our guard. We were sleeping in uh, 
uh, above a wine cellar and uh, there's all bars on the windows and that and he slept in the next room and um, he said to us one night I'm going out I'll leave the key on the ledge for you <laughs> he later blew his brains out I don't know what he got up to but anyway so a couple of then said um, well let's go out Alan my friend didn't want to go but I went with a couple of others and uh, <clears throat> we'd heard that the farm where I'd been working on, there was a party in like the village hall. So uh, we made our way there, went round the back and there was a, a young chap who was the son of the farmer where I'd worked. And he said, oh, you better go get it back, there'll be trouble. So we said, well, give us a half a litre of wine and then we'll go back. So we had half a litre of wine and when we'd had half a litre of wine, we went round the front. And uh, the front of the hall had a, like a an entrance with doors in either side. It was like a piece built on. And then another doors that led into the main hall. And then this outer bit was a long seat. And uh, so we came out there with our wine and we, and we we sat down. And four long Austrian girls had come and joined us. They came and sat with us. And then uh, the mayor came out. We heard a, a yell from within the hall. The Englanders are here. So out came the mayor. And he came up to me and he struck his lighter and I blew it out and he disappeared. <laughs> so we thought then it's time we left. <laughs> so we, we, we left and uh, made our way back. Ken was a corporal and we were good friends. And um, when we were up in mid-Greece, a place called Larissa, and where we retreated back down to Athens, um, we we were in a big school, and the company was ordered to um, to parade. And I thought, well, I haven't had a wash for a long while, so I thought, hell with a parade. So I found a bathroom, and had a bath, and looked out the window at them all on parade. And uh, afterwards when we were lining up to be sent to different beaches to provide the communications for the evacuation. Um, Ken, my friend, as he came up to me and said, you weren't, um, you weren't on the parade. So uh, I thought, well, sod you. So I never went with him in the party he was leading in the evacuation. And uh, he was killed. If I'd have been with him, I probably wouldn't have been here today. The last farm I was sent to work at, I think it was in 1940s, halfway through 1943 probably. Um, I hadn't been on very good farms before, but um, 
we, we were all, I was sent with a, another group to a small place called St Martin's in Sumtal in Austria. And um, we uh, all had to parade in the afternoon like a lot of slaves. And the farmers came out and picked people they wanted to work for them. And I was picked by a woman, Frau, forget her surname. So I, I went with her back to a farm. And as, as when we got to the farm, there was a young woman there, about 18, I suppose. So I thought, well, this looks promising. Uh, it was Mitzi. And um, so I went to work on this farm. And um, was it after the war? Yeah, I did some research. I got in touch with um, the archives in the county town of Graz in Austria, which was the county town of the area I was in, and asked if they could help me trace Mitzi, who was the daughter. And uh, they did. They did lots of research for me, then said, I think we found her. And they gave me um, her email address and that. And so it, it started from there. So that's the incredible Jack Ansell. Now, don't forget, you can watch the video version of this recording over on the 3945portraits.com website and check out the memories section. Also, whilst you're there, take a look at the portraits page and you'll see a couple that I've done of Jack and you'll see what I mean about his youthful looks. Right, that's all for this episode. So Dave and me will catch you next time.